Well, I'm excited to be talking to you about family worship. Uh, it is a passion of mine, and uh, I'm especially excited to do it here. Uh, Twin Lakes has been, I often tell people when I come here, it's like coming home for me. Well, it's been, I guess, 10 or so years that I've been coming here, and like David, uh, some of my best friends in the world are men that I have met here. Uh, Twin Lakes, every year, I'm laboring in Michigan. Uh, Twin Lakes, different years have served different purposes. It has encouraged me that there are men out there that uh, are scattered all over the country that have similar views that I do, that are doing the same things, that I'm not alone. Uh, It's been a great encouragement in that way. It's uh, been an encouragement to my soul to sit under the Word and to have somebody else preaching to me. Uh, In many years, uh, that is what has fed me here. Other years, frankly, it's just I want to see the sun after about six months of darkness in Michigan and have some free ice cream, and so I'm down here. But always enjoy it, and uh, so thankful that I'm here and get to share family worship with you. There are handouts that were given to you. I don't want you to stress out. I know that we're a group of Presbyterians, and this is like the only group that you can be anal retentive, and it's a virtue. So we are going to spend most of our time on just the first couple of points. So don't start sweating. We'll go quickly through the end and the uh, gentle encouragements at the end. But I'm not going to take it for granted uh, that you are all convinced uh, about the need for family worship or the basis for family worship. And so I want to spend a lot of our time there. Uh, I hope you will think through your people and think through your own family as well as we're doing so. If I was to ask you, uh, what is the crucial issue for our generation? What would be your answer? I think if we asked our people in our churches that question, it would be interesting what the answer would be. I think some people would probably say it's the AIDS pandemic in Africa. Or people would say, as I heard one congressman say the other day, he said nuclear Iran is the biggest issue of our entire generation. Or for other people, it may be the disillusion of the family in Western society with uh, divorce rampant and... uh, Children out of wedlock and now homosexual union that is being falsely called marriage on the rise and seems to be a lost cultural battle. And I wouldn't fault anybody for naming any of those things. I think those are all things that are incredibly important, but they are not the crucial issue. None of them are for our generation. In fact, the crucial issue is the same for our generation as it was for the generation that preceded us. And it's also true that it was the same crucial issue for the generation that preceded it and preceded it and preceded it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And it's one. It is singular. It is what will men worship? What will men worship? And I would suggest to you this afternoon that we have two primary responsibilities related to that. The first is that we are to live a life of worship ourselves. And the second is that we must pass on this life of worship to the next generation. And that's where I want to start this afternoon is talk about living a life of worship and then second, passing on this life of worship to the next generation. 
I was, uh, a few years ago, I was in a video game store. I never go to video game stores. I know nothing about video games. I was buying a video game for a niece of mine for her birthday, and I walked into the store, and because I know nothing about video games, I thought I would hover for a while and just see what I could pick up that people were talking about, and maybe that would help me. And so I was listening to the cashier and a customer who had just walked in. And the cashier was behind the counter, and as they were discussing this new game that had clearly come out within the last week, the cashier said to the customer, he said, I was made for this game. And I thought, made for a game? He saw that as his reason for being. Literally, he is on earth to play this game that has come out in the last week. I think people struggle with this. People struggle with this in our churches. Uh, Men will search high and low to figure out their reason for being. Uh, People will, I don't know why it's always India, but they will travel to India to find their reason for being. Others will advocate some kind of inner search and and getting inside yourself and and contemplating and emptying yourself, and and there you'll find your reason for being. But the, the former is just an expensive holiday, and the second is just a fool's errand at best. Our reason for being is very clear. Because the Scriptures are clear. It's it's not a mystery. It's not an enigma. It's not hidden. It's not something you have to discover or find. All you have to do is read or listen. Our reason for being is to be a worshiper. That's why you and I were created. That's why your people were created. That's why your family members were created. That's why your neighbors were created. To be worshipers of the living triune God. Listen, you can go home and you can save your people a lot of money and a lot of wasted time. You just keep reiterating to them over and over and over, you were created to be a worshiper. They were created, you were created to give living, conscious, faith-filled, passionate, image-bearing worship unto the living God. With your lips, with your hands, with your minds, with your souls, with your very hearts. I love Psalm 8 and how David is caught up with this thought. He is contemplating the greatness of God and He says this, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. His glory is so great that not even the heavens can can keep it hemmed in. He can't be constrained. He is that majestic. He is that glorious. He is that awesome in the true sense of the word. And David's caught up with this thought. And then he says this. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have made, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? He's mindful of us. He's mindful of you. He's mindful of me. If you truly have a Big God theology, as our Southern Baptist friends like to say often. This fact should rattle your soul with delight. It is one of the great mysteries of the universe. 
That this transcendent, majestic God is mindful of us. So much so that He has set mankind apart from the animals and the plants and and the birds and the flowers and even the stars and even the angels to be special. We have been given the honor and the privilege of of being the chief mirrors of all of creation reflecting back to Him His glory. Us. Be as it were a kind of living, breathing image bearer that He just continually sees Himself in. This is why Paul can say in Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. All that you are. Or why he can say in 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You're created for this purpose. But, But we can take it one step further, can't we? We're not only created for this purpose to be a worshiper of God, but we were recreated for this purpose. I was uh, at my first Presbytery meeting. Uh, I wasn't even a candidate under care yet. And I was sitting beside, behind two older Presbyterian pastors with gray hair and that silver hair that I will never get and always wanted. But that silver hair that were sitting in front of me and an ordinan got up to preach his ordination sermon. And he said, uh, my text today will be from Ephesians 1. And... The one old Presbyterian leaned over to the other and he said, well, isn't that original for a Presbyterian? Uh, We talk about predestination and election from Ephesians 1, and, and yet what is the purpose of that? Verse 12, Christians are those whom He saved to the praise of His glory. You were not only created for worship, you were recreated for worship. But we can even take that a step further, can't we? Not only were you created for worship, not only were you recreated for worship, but you will be resurrected unto worship. This is what the saints triumphant are even doing now. And this is what we will do for all of eternity. Revelation 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Isn't this our delight? Don't we know this? I have to ask Terry later. Uh, I think this probably comes from Hughes Old Fan Old. I've been using it so long. I know it's not original to me because it's too good. Uh, but it sounds like Hughes Old Fan Old to me. You know, that old thing where you quote somebody the first time you say, so and so said this, second time you do it and you say a theologian or a commentator said this, third time you say, as I've always said. And that's kind of where I'm at with this. As I've always said. Uh, but I think it's old. You have to tell me, Terry. Um, but in worship, it's, it's not in worship that we so much give, that we give. And worship is not so much about receiving, though we receive. It's about being. It's about dwelling. It's about communing with the triune God. Do we give in worship? Oh, yes. 
Right? We ascribe praise. We ascribe thanksgiving. We give our tithes. We give our offerings. Do we receive? Oh my goodness, we receive. We receive His love and His peace and His grace and His mercy and His consolation. But all of that is under the rubric of just meeting with Him. Of just dwelling with Him. Of just communing with Him. This should delight the Christian. Think of the psalmist where he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after. I might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple. That this is the one thing. To just, to, just to be with God. We were created, recreated, and resurrected unto this. Having said that, I, I think it's also clear, as, as all of life is to be worship, I think it's also clear that the Scriptures give us three what I call spheres of worship. And I don't think that all of life being worshipped somehow diminishes or dismisses the importance of these specific times of worship. Rather, I think it emphasizes it and it necessitates it. And in the history of the church, these three have always been recognized. And as we'll discuss about family worship, I think this one has especially fallen on hard times of late. But the first sphere would be secret worship. This is not something I probably have to convince you of. You know this evangelicalism has done a good job. There's some baggage with it, but has done a good job of emphasizing the need that you and I have to spend time alone with the Lord in prayer and reading the Scriptures and singing. All right, and we know this from the Scriptures. Joshua 1.8, he meditates upon the law day and night. We heard uh, earlier today about Daniel 6 and Daniel 9 as Daniel is praying before the Lord, getting a way to pray. We maybe need no better example than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who we are told in the Gospel of Mark rose early in the morning while it was still dark so that He could spend time alone with the Father in prayer. And then you'll think about him in Matthew where he says, but when you go to pray. Not if you go to pray, but when. He assumes, he takes it for granted that his disciples will go to pray. So when you go to pray, you close the door behind you in your closet and you cry out to your Father in heaven. That is private or secret worship. If that is one end of the spectrum, the other end of the spectrum is, is corporate worship, right? Where we gather together with God's people to offer worship to Him, where we hear the word read and preached, and where we sing and where we pray. And until recently, you and I wouldn't have had to make the case for this. Uh, this would have been a foregone conclusion. As a Christian, you gather together with other Christians to worship if you can. But as you know, there are so-called major evangelicals that are now advocating that there is no such need. I was uh, blessed this last week. I'm part of a commission to uh, particularize a PCA church. And so we were uh, interviewing the men that were going to be ruling elders and examining them. And one of the men was a Men that I, a man that I had met eight years ago. And I was a church planner at the time, and I had stumbled across him one day, and I asked him one day, I said, are you a Christian? 
And he said, yes. And I said, is your wife a Christian? He said, yes. I said, well, where do you go to church? And he said, well, we don't go to church. I said, well, where did you go this last Sunday? He said, we didn't go this last Sunday. What we do is we go out on our patio and we read the Bible together and drink coffee together. And I went home that day and told my wife, I'm going to hound this guy and his wife. And, uh, and here he was. He had moved to another city. And he's coming forth now as an elder in this church plant. And so I was reminding him in his exam and asking him about his love for worship. But there, there, there is this need to, to gather together with God's people in worship. Right? There's a corporate nature to our faith, isn't there? You need look no further than the New Testament where it gives a constant analogy of who we are or uses different metaphors for who we are as the flock of Christ in Luke 12 and John 10 and 1 Peter 5. It speaks of us as the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19 and Revelation 21. In Ephesians 2, we are being joined together. We are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 2.21, and being built together into a dwelling place by, for God, by the Spirit. Ephesians 2.22. And probably the greatest metaphor for the church in the Scriptures is that we are the body of Christ, right? In 1 Corinthians 12. And this is why the writer of Hebrews can say, you must not forsake that, forsake that weekly meeting together with the saints. There is the need to, to gather together. And what do God's people do when they gather together? It doesn't matter where you look in the Scriptures, whether it's at the foot of Mount Sinai, or whether it's the temple, or the synagogue, or the house churches in Acts. When God's people gather together, they worship. It's what we were created for. It's what we were recreated for. It's what marks us, so it makes sense that when we gather together, we we do so in worship. And I I desperately need every single person in that church, and they need me. Because I I need Susie with the gift of hospitality. And I need Mark with the the gift of service. And, And I need Ben with the gift of exhortation. And they need my gift. And when we meet together, we can truly say that the the Spirit and and all His fullness and all of His manifest gifts are present. There is no Lone Ranger Christianity. There's not even a Tonto in Lone Ranger Christianity. We need one another. Private worship, corporate worship, and the last is family worship. Family worship is that sphere of worship where we gather together with the people that live under our roof for a time of worship. 10, 15, 20 minutes where we read the Bible, we pray, and we dare to sing. It could be a single mom and her kids. It could be a mother and father and their 2.5 kids. It could be mother and father and their kids and Uncle Bob who lives in the spare room and they dare to let him out to join him in worship. Whoever it is, gathering together for a time of worship. We want homes that are centered upon Christ. I'm a Christian. This is my home. It's my home. 
So I, I want it to be centered upon the person of Christ. And I know of no better way to do that than to practice consistent, regular, hopefully daily family worship. I think a lot of times we think that, uh, well, my wife and I are Christians, and so this is a Christian home. And things will happen as we go along through the course of the day. But, you know, two bankers living together doesn't make it a bank. It's what happens. It's the commerce that's going on inside of it. And for a Christian, that the Christian home, that should be worship. We want to be, as it were, as Jonathan Edwards said, a little church. Because we're a Christian family. We're a covenant family. I say, well, that sounds like legalism. Nah. It's our joy, right? It's our delight to, to meet with God and Him to meet with us by His Word and by His Spirit. It's a natural expression of living a life of worship unto God. It, it, it is our response to that magnificent grace that has been poured out upon us. So we want to worship Him. And I want my family to worship Him. Let me ask you this, pastors. If, if you had a congregant that came to you or you went to and they told you, Never read the word in private. I, I never pray in private. Would you suspect their Christian faith? Like most of us would. We'd probably encourage them, try and graciously encourage them. But there'd be some doubts in the back of our mind. If you were on vacation, because I know this wouldn't happen at your church, but if you were on vacation and you went and visited a church of, of Beachfront USA, and you went in, and everybody was drinking coffee and eating donuts, and, and you said, well, when does worship begin? When is there going to be the reading and preaching? Where they said, no, we don't do that. We're, we're just, we get together and we talk about Jesus and eat and some donuts and drink coffee. You would probably have questions about that church, I would hope. But our homes, it can be absent, and we don't think anything of it. It's good Presbyterians, you'll know that in the directory of public worship, right, that the Westminster Divines, they, they believed this was a disciplinable offense if we weren't practicing regular family worship. So we need to practice it. Our second point. We need to pass on this life of worship to the following generation. What I want you to do is turn to Psalm 78 with me. One of my favorite psalms. I want to look at the first eight verses with you as we think about passing it on to the following generation. This is a mask of Asaph. And I'm going to read the first eight verses and we'll kind of gently walk our way through. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. 
We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. And arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Asaph is going to spend the rest of this psalm recounting the history of what God has done for the nation of Israel. He's going to go through mighty deed after mighty deed, and he's going to show how God was willing and how He was working for the sake of His people. I want to get four points just from these first eight verses and pull them out and tease them out a little bit. The first is that Asaph wants this history to be preserved. This account. And so he is preserving it by telling it to others. He is recalling all the facts of what God has done, or some of the facts of what God has done for the nation of Israel, what they've been affected by, and what has shaped them. As we think about it, God's people are to be historians. We are to be concerned with preserving the history of God's working and and God's willing in the church. We have a living, breathing, real, purposeful history that is to be preserved. But, but not just for the sake of preserving history, for the sake of preserving history. And that leads us to Asaph's second point. We are to perceive this history. He says in verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. He's about to tell them their history, but he says it's a parable. It's a, it's, it's, it's shadowed. It's dark, he's saying. It's a history that by itself is kind of a tangled mess. You can't make sense of it. It's just a ball of different colored strings, or as Winston Churchill once said about something, it's a riddle wrapped up in a mystery and an enigma. And so he says it's going to take making sense of. It needs interpretation. And Asaph says that there is a key to this interpretation. And he shows us that the key is the lens of faith. That this is the key to rightly preserve, uh, perceiving this history. This isn't just history for history's sake. He's telling the history of redemption. He says in verse 4 that he is telling the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. You may have been bored with history in high school, but you cannot as a Christian be bored with the history of redemption. It should excite and enthrall us. And so Asaph wants them to know it. To perceive it. And, And as we perceive it, it's meant to... It's meant to draw us in. It's meant to to suck us in and lead us to search our own conscience and to search our own hearts. When you read the Pentateuch or when you read 1 Kings or when you read the Gospels or read the Psalms, they are history lessons meant to draw you in. They are real life true events. 
Yes, Jonah was swallowed by a whale. And yes, the Red Sea was parted. And yes, manna fell from the sky. And yes, the walls of Jericho fell. And yes, there was one who was the Son of God that was born in flesh, that came into this world of the womb of the Virgin Mary, and that He lived a perfectly righteous life, that He died upon the cross, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day. All real-life true events. And events that, that we're meant to, to perceive, to understand. Asaph says in verse 3 that he is, and his generation heard these things, but they didn't just hear them. He says, but they have known them. That they were drawn in by them. That they knew them to be true. Their story is meant to bring us in and force us to draw conclusions. And the conclusion is verse 4. What glorious deeds the Lord has done. What might He has exercised. What wonders He has done. And that leads to the third point. This history is to be proclaimed. It's to be proclaimed to those around us. But specifically, Asaph has in mind that, that next generation that is to follow You know this, but these aren't cute stories that we just tell our kids. These aren't fables. These aren't moral lessons. It's the history of God's working for His people and and who He is. And it's to be proclaimed. It's to be declared with boldness. Because we really believe this. And that leads to our final point. Asaph would have us propagate this history, this story. He says, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation. He says in verses 5 and 6, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers to teach our children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their generation so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. He he wants to see this history preserved, but not just preserved. He he wants to see it perceived, but but not just perceived, but understood by our generation so that we might proclaim it. And we're not just proclaiming it for the sake of proclaiming it. We're proclaiming it so it might be propagated, so that the next generation might believe it, might grab a hold of it, might cherish it. And so they are to do with the next generation. And the generation after that. As Christians, we want this story to continue through generation after generation after generation until our Lord returns. You and I have been the recipients of this grace. Like Paul, when he says to Timothy, you know, that Eunice and Lois, his mother and grandmother, you know, this, this good deposit that they gave to him. They passed it on. When I was uh, an intern, I interned at a large PCA church uh, that had a lot of wealthy people. And one day, I was as a pastoral intern, was at a senior citizen banquet and was sitting at a table and someone came and whispered in my ear, do you know who you're sitting across from? And I said, I don't know. They said, that's Bunker Hunt. That didn't mean a thing to me. 
I went home that night and looked up Bunker on the internet. thought, well, if someone's going to go out of their way and tell me Bunker Hunt sent across the table, I should probably find out who he is. You may not know Bunker Hunt. You may have heard of Lamar Hunt, who was the owner of the Kansas City Chiefs and died a couple of years ago. Well, Bunker and Lamar were brothers, and at one time in the history of uh, the world, they were two of the five richest men on the planet. These two brothers. So I was reading stories that night when I got home that back in, I think, in the 80s, 70s or 80s, must have been the 70s, Bunker and Lamar decided they had so much of the world's wealth that they were going to corner the silver market. They were going to buy up the majority of the world's silver and then dictate the price of silver throughout the world. And this story told how they... These were good Texas boys, and so they brought all kinds of sharpshooters out to their ranch in Texas and had these sharpshooting competitions. And then they would fly these sharpshooters to to Europe because silver is a commodity. So as they were buying it, they had to ship it all over Europe to different banks. And then they would have these sharpshooters sitting shotgun in these armored cars that were going all over Europe as they were buying up all of this silver. I think, what, what expense they went to. What effort? We have a treasure of infinite value. Infinite value. And here's what's so amazing about it. I can keep giving it away and giving it away and giving it away and it steals nothing from me. We've been given this good deposit. Somebody gave it to you. I don't know who it was. Your parents, your Sunday school teacher, your preacher growing up. Your neighbor, someone gave it to you. And Asaph is saying we are to pass this on to those that follow us. It's beautiful, the purpose that he gives in verse 7. He says, so that they might set their hope in God and not forget His works, but keep His commandments. I don't know about you, but that's the greatest desire I have for my children. It couldn't be said more beautifully. That they might set their hope in God and not forget His works, but keep His commandments. In our families, I think there is no single better way to do this than in regular family worship. I think that we think we're passing on the faith or that we're discipling our children more than we are when we're not. I think without some kind of regularity and structure, it is something we are doing far less than we think we are. I say, oh, Jason, you just added weight to our people. I'm not adding weight just to your people. I want to add weight to you. (laughs) But it's not a weight. It's no more of a weight than practicing daily private worship with the Lord any more of a weight than gathering together each Lord's Day to worship the Lord with His people. It's a means of grace. It's a gift. It's hard at times. Many nights that I come home and uh, we're out after the day and uh, it is out of mere duty that I do it. It's a struggle. I just want to get the kids in bed so that 
I can have a few minutes before I go to bed to rest. But there, and it's challenging, especially with small children and teenage children. So it's middle that are okay. I'm in a good stage right now. Uh, there are nights, though, that our family worship looks more like a comedy of errors than anything else. Uh, there was a couple of months ago, I was leading in family worship. For some reason, my six-year-old son thought that whatever I was talking about should remind him of My Little Ponies. And so he began talking about My Little Ponies. And my daughter, of course, who is nine years old, that delighted her affections to start thinking about My Little Ponies. And the erudite commentary I had prepared on the passage and the winsome questions were no match for Twilight Sparkle and Rainbow Dash. And it was, it was over. It was, it was, let's close in prayer. And we'll try this again tomorrow night. But there are other weeks, uh, like two weeks ago, where I was leading them through a passage on the Transfiguration. And I was talking to them about how wonderful it will be when we're able to gaze upon the glory of the Lord. And we'll be able to see our God in the face of Christ. And my six-year-old son He said to me that night, he said, if I go to heaven, Daddy, will I see His glory? And I said, Ethan, what what do you mean by if? And my six-year-old son said, Daddy, I don't know that I'm going to heaven. I said, why is that, Ethan? He said, because I have such bad thoughts about people. He said, I just get angry. I said, oh, son. Christ's death is sufficient for that. Next day, my wife, my son, loves the iPad. Loves his games on the iPad. It's an awful April Fool's joke the other day when I told him I deleted all of his games off the iPad and he began crying. It was not... It was not funny. But the day after that family worship, uh, my son, I was getting ready to head to church. My wife was in the bathroom. My son came in and finished off his chores that morning and said, can I do my 10 minutes on the iPad, Mommy? And... She said, no, you can't. And, and I watched him get really angry and, and could see his little mind going. And then he began to cry. And I, I sat on the bed there and I called him over to myself and I could tell that it was a different cry. It wasn't just that cry of frustration. And he sat on my lap and he put his head on my shoulder and I said, son, are you, are you having angry thoughts at your mother? He said, yes, daddy. And I feel awful. Uh, What did we talk about last night in family worship? Christ's blood is sufficient. You just have to trust in Him. Without family worship, we wouldn't have had those two conversations. There are nights that are good. Like that, I can think of a month ago where... My wife was out of town and 
I was reading, I usually read a chapter, and my kids loved it, and said, they, we want to read another chapter, Daddy. said, great, you want to tell this preacher twice? We'll read another chapter. And we want another one, Daddy. Great, let's keep going. Maybe they were stalling for bed, but maybe they're holy. And, uh, and so we read, and, and then we closed in prayer that night, and, and my son prayed that night. He said, God, help me to love you. Oh, that's, that's a good prayer. My daughter, she prayed after him and she said, God, help, help me to have a heart that desires to obey you. I'll take that one too. That daily family worship, I, I, I get to pray with my kids as they've been influenced and impacted by the word in that moment. It's wonderful. Not always wonderful, but a lot of times wonderful. There are a lot of benefits to family worship in the home. I would encourage you to teach your people it. I would encourage you to practice it if you're not. I'll quickly go through these. Um, I could give you a list a mile long from different people that have given me testimonies over the years. It centers the home. Uh, it makes worshiping the Lord central in your home. My, my family, my kids, we love to do all kinds of things. Our, one of our favorite things is I love to cook. And so we get three uh, channels on our TV at home. One of them is PBS. And we love to sit down and watch a cooking show together. And so my kids love when Julia Childs comes on because we just mock her voice the entire time and then we act like we're eating the food that she's cooking. We do things like that. But when my kids leave the home, I don't want the primary thing that they think about what we did every day at home together or what was the main thing that I did with mom and dad was watching Julia Childs cooking. Or that they dragged us off to all these different sporting events. Or that we watch TV together. Or that we even laugh together. What I hope they say when they walk away from our home is that our parents, they weren't perfect. They weren't even great. But they loved the Lord and they gathered us together in worship each night. That's that's what centered our home. That's what we did together as a family together. It encourages Christian character in our children and ourselves and our wives. It encourages peace in the home. I had a wife after I had uh, taught her family about family worship. I had a wife come to me about six months later and she came up to me and she said, Pastor Jason, she said, I, I just want to thank you. I said, why is that? She said, family worship has drastically changed our home. I said, how is that? She said, well... She said, it's brought peace. I said, why is that? She said, because I was always bitter with my husband and was always critiquing him. But I found that it was awfully hard to gather together with him in worship when I had been critiquing him all day. And I became convicted. And it's helped me to repent. It binds the family together. It's something common that you're doing with each other. I think it is a wonderful means for passing on the faith. It's not a secret pill. It's not a guarantee. But we want to keep pushing our kids and our wives and everyone else that is in our home and ourselves in the way of the means of grace. Just keep pushing them in the way of the means of grace. 
It gives a common knowledge. It informs conversations. We will be going around the grocery store. I go to the grocery store each Monday with my two kids. And uh, often our conversations are what we were discussing in family worship that week. Because that's some of our common knowledge. That's what we, some of the things we have to discuss because we're doing this together. It reinforces spiritual headship. There are wonderful benefits for the local church. I think these three spheres of family, corporate, and uh, family worship, that, that they're all lean upon each other, and so they inform each other. When my corporate worship is lacking, my secret, my family worship is going to suffer. When I'm not spending time alone with the Lord, my family worship and my corporate worship is going to suffer. When I'm not practicing family worship, my corporate worship and my secret worship is going to suffer. That's just a reality. I think it has a benefit for the local church of coming alongside parents instead of replacing them. It trains men to lead future elders and deacons. Uh, tell you going around and speaking about this at different churches, one of the big questions, especially men, and it's usually not in a setting like this, they'll come up afterwards and they'll say, what, what do I do if I just don't feel comfortable praying out loud? Or what do I do if I, I don't feel like I, I know the Bible? I think, oh, family worship is one of the the great venues to to encourage those men that, you know what, it's really not that hard. Just start reading the Bible to your family. You don't have to say a word on it to start with. But you try and grow in that. Pray. Look, turn to Psalm 51 and just turn the pronouns around. and Pray through that. Ephesians 3. Pray that for your family. And begin that way and then seek to grow in prayer. It helps to build future leaders in the church. Many pastoral issues are relieved as your people will. Uh, I think often as pastors we are busy trying to remedy problems in our church. And I think a lot of times uh, things can be stopped before they start. And family worship is one of the means of doing that. It's very hard for a father to begin to lead his family in worship if he's just been yelling at his wife. That's just hard. He's going to have to ask her forgiveness before she's going to sit down, or at least that's how it works in my home. Right? It encourages. encourages maturity. One of my favorites is I think, oh, if you can get your people to dare to sing, I love vibrant singing. This is one of the reasons I love Twin Legs. It encourages vibrant singing in your church. I have people start doing the math and tell me, if you just, if you just take a hymn a month with your family and teach them, and you have your kids doing family worship, let's say for, I'm not a math guy, this is one of the reasons I'm a pastor, so let's say 10 years, and you do a hymn a month, that, that's 120 hymns they've learned. My daughter will go around humming hymns sometimes. And... A lot of that's due to family worship. All right, advice for pastors and elders. I'm going to close with this. Practice it. Don't assume that your children will pick it up just because they hear you preaching or because their life is wrapped up in the church because your life is. As necessary as the means of grace are for your people, so it is for you and your family. You need it. Your family needs it. Shepherd your own home. As you know, this is one of the qualifications for 1 Timothy 3. 
think often we are, most of us are in the ministry because we love God and we love His Word and we love people and so we care for their souls and we know that we're responsible before God for their souls. But don't forget that you have souls in your home that you are even more so responsible for. I think uh, the pastor's family, maybe no family is in more danger than the pastor's family. Because of the tax that it will receive from our adversary. Because of the demands. But I think it is equally true that no family is in a better place of opportunity to thrive spiritually than the pastor's family. You know how valuable the means of grace are. You know the grace of God. You know all the things that are happening in the church and can lead your children to pray for them and then they get to see these things answered. You get to talk to them about how this person came to faith or that person came to faith that other people in the church have no clue about. They have wonderful benefits. Besides a pastor that falls into gross sin, there are a few things that grieve me more than seeing a pastor that has neglected his family and he blames it on the busyness of the pastorate. It's not an excuse, brothers. So that leads to C. Safeguard the time. Safeguard your evenings with your family. I promise my wife, uh, I don't do this, always will, but I promise my wife... uh, When I entered the pastorate, I told her I will not be out of the home more than three nights a week, and I'm going to make sure that it's usually only two nights a week. And 99% of the time, that's been the case in our marriage. Because I'm going to safeguard our family time. So you know what? Those elder meetings and those committee meetings, you schedule them for 7.30 if you have young kids after they've gone to bed. And you model before your people that, you know what? Your family matters, and they're going to be a priority. Don't be out of the home too many evenings of the week. D, save sermons for the pulpit. Family worship is not a time for you to preach, pastors. I was talking the other night during family worship, and I guess I must have been moving my hands, and my son said, Daddy, you, you're moving your hands like you're preaching. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I wasn't meaning to preach. Uh, don't preach in family worship. It's not the time for it. It's gentle. It's easy. It's quick doesn't need to be too complex. Model humility. Don't dominate pastors. You pastors, you intimidate people. Most of you intimidate me. I was uh, sitting down last night with one of you and you were talking about some theological thing and I said, you got to slow down for the slow among us. You intimidate people because you know the Scriptures. You can pray. And some of your wives may not tell you, but they can be intimidated by your spiritual life. And your children can definitely be intimidated by your spiritual life. Think, ah, daddy's just, he's not going to think my prayer is very good. He's not going to think that I, he's going to tell me I gave the wrong answer when he asked me a question in the Bible. Don't dominate. And open it up and Allow them to contribute and affirm them and encourage them as you're talking through the Scripture and allow them to pray and 
I model wonderful prayers, and, but try not to intimidate. With that, pastors, uh, family worship is not a place for you to exercise your perfectionism. It's a means of grace. Help your family to feel like it's a means of grace. It doesn't have to be perfect every night. E, show it's a priority. Give it time, give it energy, give it joy. Come to family worship with as much excitement as you head off to that elders meeting. Or maybe not the elders meeting. Maybe as you go to, maybe as you go to corporate worship. Show your family that this is, this is something that, that you love and you love being with them and you love gathering together with them around the word and prayer. Not, not because you want to hear yourself speak, but because you just love being with them around the means of grace. And model that to them. <laughs> Maybe there is nothing better for our children than seeing that we are excited in family worship at home because this allows them to begin to think, ah, dad's not just a mere professional. He's not just a pastor on Sundays. He really loves the Word of God. He really loves to pray. So much so that he wants us to do it every night with him and he's excited about it. Advice for pastors and elders in local church, teach it. Take Sunday school classes, parent retreats, marriage retreat, weekends, teach it. Preach it. Emphasize it from the pulpit. Use illustrations at times in your sermons. Be careful. Uh, Not pointing to yourself, but uh, use illustrations at times to show people that you're practicing it. Model it. This may be the most important thing. Invite families over to your home. Have dinner together and then say, you know what, it's our usual practice to do family worship. Would you join us for 15 minutes before you leave? And then make it very simple. Just read, pray, show them how unintimidating it is. And do it. Model it. Have your elders model it. Disciple to it. Take younger couples and families and begin training those men Help them to get comfortable with praying and reading the Word and even offering a a little thought on it. Help them by telling them just to go slowly. So many young men get excited about it and they want to start off in Leviticus with their family and plow through it like five chapters a night. Say, ah, start slow. You You can read two verses and it's okay. It doesn't need to be complex. Simple. Encourage your people. Remind them over and over and over that it's a means of grace. So many people start and then you stop and you forget and and you're not doing it for a few days and not a week and and then it's a couple weeks and then it just feels like, oh man, i got to start this whole thing all over again. i got to get that wheel going again. And so you never go back. And I tell people, look, as soon as you realize you've missed a few nights, you've missed a week, you've missed two weeks, you realize that it's a means of grace. Just start right up again. No guilt needed. Encourage your people with it. Advice. Give advice to your families. A lot of families have questions about what to do with young children, what to do with teenagers, what to do if my husband has no desire to be involved in family worship. What if my wife uh, doesn't want to? What, what if my husband won't lead? Give them advice. Help them to think through it. Emphasize it. This is incredibly important. Don't overprogram your churches. Your people are so busy. And a lot of your people are too busy with church. Because you got them tied up every night of the week. 
There are people that I literally say to as a pastor, you better not get involved in this. You're doing too much. You're not home with your family ever. Don't, don't over-program. Emphasize the need for them to have some nights together. I think my family, it's probably four or five nights a week that we're able to do family worship. Provide. Provide weekly family worship bulletins. I've done this at a couple of different churches that I've served. Just make it simple. Show them how simple. Show them how to, the Scripture to read, a song to sing, and a prayer to pray and lay it out for them. Make it incredibly simple. A lot of people struggle with singing. You shouldn't today. Man, we got, we got the internet now. Right? You can pull up YouTube and play hymns off of it. Right? it uh, incredibly easy. And encourage your people to sing. And lastly, just encourage them again. Just keep encouraging them. Tell them that it's a means of grace. Good for the souls of their family. Good for them. And it's not to be a weight or a burden. And I hope that you will begin practicing it. And you'll lead your families in the church in it. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we are thankful that you are a God of grace. A God of mercy. We're thankful that you have given us means. We're thankful for the word. We're thankful for prayer. We're thankful for the corporate observance of the sacraments. We're thankful that we can lift our hearts in thanksgiving and praise and confession and song. We're thankful that you are such a wonderful God that it is our joy to delight in. And we pray that where we lack delight that you would increase it. And we be pastors and elders that love to worship you. Love to worship you in secret. Love to worship you with the people. And that love to worship you in our families. And mark our very lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.